last study in Genesis. And one of the things just kind of to mention to you as we think about it, uh, is by way of just a reminder, Genesis 1 through 11, uh, there are four key events. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the nations are kind of there. And so those four things are kind of picked up in Genesis 1 through 11. You kind of see this, this kind of unfold before us. And then after you kind of end in chapter 11, you're a little bit like, I don't know what's going to take place, what this is going to uh, be like, because everything's kind of broken. There's a lot of sadness that we're left with. As chapter 12 comes to our minds, as we see that, there are four key people from chapters 12 through chapter, from chapter 12 through chapter 50. There are four key people that are, that are there in the, in the text. So we have key events, creation, fall, flood, and nations. Key people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, Abraham, God made a promise to him that he would bless him, that he would make his name great, he would make him a, a, a great people, that they would have a place to live, and it would be a wonderful place, a land flowing with milk and honey, and that he would, he would bless them, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed through this family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs of the family, basically just saying they're the father of the family, and, and the fathers of the family, and basically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hear the promise repeated to them throughout their life. So Abraham had a son named Isaac, Isaac had a son named Jacob, and then Joseph is all about the preservation of the promise, how God's going to rescue the promise from being lost. So that's kind of a, an outline for what's going on in the text. I think it's important. Then, now here's the other thing, just to say this, so if you're, if you're new to the Bible or whatever, you, today we're going to look at kind of, he's going to speak to all of his sons. These sons will become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And they're going to become a great nation. The promise was given to an individual. He had a son. Another one had a son. But now, there are going to be 12 sons, the 12 sons of Jacob, and they will become this great nation, the nation of Israel. And so, I think it's important to say that as we move forward. Now, the other thing is, is uh, the Scripture today, when he's going to speak to both, both to Joseph's sons and then to all of his sons, it's going to say that Jacob's giving them a blessing. But there's a little bit of this feeling of like not all of them seem to get a very good like blessing in a, in a way. You kind of feel a little strange by it. And one of the things just kind of helps you understand this. Verse 28 says, "All these in, in I'm sorry in, in um, the chapter in chapter 49 in verse 28, all these are are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him." And so again, some of them, it's like the blessing seems a little bit like a curse almost, but it has a prophetic feel, and it's going to speak forward to kind of their future, kind of looks back to their past and kind of moves forward in their future. And so I just kind of lay that out for you now. I was thinking this week about this. If someone was to like give you a blessing suitable for your life, if someone was going to say, after looking over your life, this is the blessing that you received from it. You were to stop and think about that. What would be said if it was accurate to how you had lived? Would you be fearful of what might come? You kind of want to ask today, I think, are you living a life that would be worthy of the God who's called you? And are you seeking first His kingdom? And are you living in a way that... that that, that would be spoken of your life, that people would speak of you in a way that would be honoring and in, in, in something that you would think would be a, a blessing, a true blessing. So we'll talk about that as we move forward, but I just wanted you to think in terms of that. 
Now turn to Genesis 48. We're looking in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was uh, told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And you'll notice here, I think it's important, Jacob's ill. He's going to call his son to him. He's going to set up for this final meeting. Uh, Joseph, again, is the one he's, he is, is his favorite son. Throughout the, the, the Scripture, we see that. And now he wants to meet with him privately. And we're, we're going to kind of see that unfold. Now, in verse 3, Jacob is going to begin to speak about this promise that God had given him. And you'll note this, Jacob is repeating the promise and he speaks of a place called Luz, but also this is like the older name for Bethel. Now that's the place where Jacob's going to meet with God twice. On his way out of the promised land, when he's running from his brother and going to get a wife, and on his way back. And on his way back, God's going to come to him and speak to him again. In the first meeting, there was a vision of a ladder. And the ladder was coming down out of heaven. And the angels were ascending and descending upon this ladder. Then the Lord kind of comes down and speaks to him. Now, that, that's a very important moment. And there's this kind of idea here. He's going to lay this out. But, it, but the picture there is, God is going, there's a way that God is still connected. That heaven is connected down to earth. God is still actively involved. But later, even it's going to say of Jesus that He was the ladder that came down out of heaven to to come down to man. There's something very powerful about that. And so he's going to have that. But then 20 years later, when he comes back, again, the Lord is going to meet with him and the promise is going to come to him. And it's the same promise, again, given to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And now he kind of has the authority to do with the promise, in a sense, he's going to be able to speak over the blessing to those people that are under his care. And so in verse 5, now this is kind of a strange thing because you maybe you've never heard of anything like this. Uh, I don't know that I have, but he is going to take uh, Joseph's two sons and he's going to adopt them. It's kind of, a, again, like one of those things where maybe you've never heard of anything like this. So their grandfather is going to adopt them. He says, and now your two sons who were born to you, in verse 5, in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. The two sons' names are Ephraim and Manasseh. They shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But it's just important, I think, to say here, he takes them and he says, these two sons of mine, or of yours, Joseph, are now mine. I'm going to take them as my sons. And not only that, they're going to kind of, there's an idea here where they're replacing my two older sons, Reuben and Simeon, my first two sons. And so what he's going to do is he's going to kind of lay that out for them because those two, in a sense, have forfeited their privilege. So he's going to say, Ephraim and Manasseh, they are my sons. Now, First Chronicles speaks of this in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So for Joseph, this is a great blessing. Even though his father's adopting his sons and taking them in, it's a great blessing. Because he's kind of almost getting the double portion, the birthright of the family. It's a very powerful thing that he would be blessed in this way. Now, after he begins to talk to Joseph for a moment, he's going to go back and he's going to speak of 
his wife that passed away, Joseph's mother. It's like it, it drove him back to that moment. He thinks about her and he speaks of her and he says that um, this is where I buried your mother, but J- Jacob's going to be buried somewhere else. He's going to be buried in the family grave. And we kind of already read about that, but he thinks back to his, his, his beloved wife and he speaks about her before he dies as he's talking to his son, his son of that woman, Rachel. And so in verse 8, as you move forward in verses 8 through 11, when Israel's, uh, Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? I don't know if Joseph like brought them in like after that, after he spoke to his father one-on-one or, or, or what, but it, somehow there he's calling them close to them and he says, These are my sons that God gave to me. And he's going to say, Bring them close to me. Now the Scripture makes clear that he's blind. He cannot see, and that's important. It's important to know that because about what he's about to do in this moment. So he's blind, and he's calling them close to him. He's about to speak to them, and he's going to bless them. And he's going to do this, and he says, I never, verse 11, Israel says to Joseph, which is the same thing for Jacob, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has set me, uh, set, let me see your offspring also. It's a monumental, uh, I can't spit that out. It's a monumental moment in the life of this family, that God has done this and He's brought them together. And Jacob sits there, and in verse 12 it says he bows down. And he's just overwhelmed. In verse 13, And Joseph took both of his sons, in his right, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Now here's the thing. What's he doing? His father is blind. He cannot see, and so... Joseph's going to have his son set up where the older will come up to his father's right hand and the younger will come up to his father's left hand. And he's going to do that because in tradition at that time, the thing would be is the older would get this greater blessing that would be blessed in a greater way and the younger would not. And so he's going to put them up there in a way because he knows his father cannot see and we kind of see this go take place. In verse 14, the blessing is going to come and Israel stretches out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim. What's he saying? Israel came up to the boys are there and he swaps hands. And he blesses the younger over uh, the, the, the older. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And you might say, well, that's weird. Why would he do that? Joseph's going to kind of ask that same question, but he's going to speak over them. And I think one of the things is that God doesn't do things the way we do them. God doesn't work the way that we work. God is accomplishing His plan. And He's doing it in His way. And oftentimes, God goes against the grain of what culture does and what society does. God accomplishes His plan in this moment and He says to him, and He blessed them, and He said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let their let my name be carried on in the name of my father, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now there's something really powerful here. I mean, I, I, when I read this, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. and I just think it's very an amazing thing. He's going to say, the God before whom my fathers walked. It's the same God that said to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Abram, get in my face. Abram, see who I am. This God, this historic, this God who's always existed is their personal God. 
And he's saying, the one, my, my father walked. My, I mean, or my grandfather, my father, and now I have walked with this God. There's something about that is so powerful to understand that. But, and I think it's something for us to stop and say, man, you, you, as a man, you want to walk with God. Don't you want to look back and say, somebody could say, my grandfather walked before God. My father walked before God, and now I'm walking before this God. This one true and living God. That's an amazing thing to me. But then he says, the God who's been my shepherd all my days. See, one of the beautiful things about us studying the life of, of, of Jacob is we know that there were so many days that he was so ornery and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And he's going to say, all of my days, the shepherd of my soul was pursuing me. God was doing a work in me. He was, he was pursuing me, as Psalm 23 says, with goodness and mercy all the days of my life. Even in his rebellion, God was still running after him. God is pursuing him. And God was going to take hold of him in his time. And, and I think it's important just to think about that. I mean, we were, Lanny and I were talking about that, that the other night before our, our, our men's time. We kind of went down there a little early. And he was just saying, you know, I, I know the time when I began to really walk with the Lord, but you know, God had been walking uh, or pursuing me all my life. But there was a point where He brought me to repentance and faith. Where He called me by name and I heard Him. I understood the truths about Him and I believed them. They transform the way I'm living. I think it's just important that we see when God has chosen to be your shepherd, He pursues you even when you're running. And He calls you to Himself. And He brings you to a place where you would bow under His authority and leadership and rejoice in that. I think it's just important that we understand that and we see that. He had pursued Him all of His days. The other thing I think it's just important for us to, to see is he says, the angel who redeemed me. That's pointing back, I think, to the time when he is, he is going to see the angel of the Lord. And, and he speaks of that in Genesis 31. He says, the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. In verse 13 he says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and, and made a vow to me. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. He's speaking back to that time when he meets with the Lord. The angel of the Lord redeemed him. That's the idea of saving him. I believe this is the what, what we would often this is the, the Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. What, what people often speak of this, the second person of the Trinity comes to redeem him, to save him, to rescue him. In that moment he was. This is a great blessing to speak over them. The very powerful thing. And then as we move forward in verses 17 through 20. Joseph's watching this unfold and he's kind of struck with like not being able to say anything. And he, he, his dad kind of gives out the blessing and he's like, no, no, dad, you got it all wrong. You crossed your hands. What are you doing? And he's, he's questioning what his father did. And his dad said, no, this is the way it's going to be. Joseph is doing this. Hebrews says he makes a blessing over Joseph's sons in faith. He is doing this under the direction of God. God is guiding this. Joseph has to back away. God has brought this about. God is in charge of making the decisions. He uses His wisdom and accomplishes His plan. Then He tells them in verses, really in 21 and 22, He's going to say, 
And Joseph, I'm going to give to your family this land that I, uh, that I have in the promised land. And he kind of promises them not only this blessing, but also the land. And it's a very powerful thing. And honestly, I, I really do think we were, I heard the group in there earlier talking about the last question on the study guide and saying, are you going to, you know, is there something to this giving a blessing or blessing someone? Jacob's blessings were certainly by God. I mean, he did this in a very powerful way. They had a prophetic thing. They, they were something God was initiating. But also, I think there's something very powerful about what he's saying. And we, we talked about last week just a little bit about deathbed uh, moments where people will speak over their family. I remember uh, when I was in high school, I had a friend whose grandfather was dying, and he was a Methodist minister. Really, I think he was a superintendent, and then God called him in the ministry, and he was a Methodist minister until he retired from that. And, and he, he spoke to his grandson at the very last moment. He was speaking to him about walking with God, about trusting God. His mother was in there. My friend's mother was in there just writing that down. I, I was thinking today, I don't know if I have those notes still. I have a box that has all this stuff in there. But just all the words that he gave him in his final hour. You, know, you, you do think that, that there's some value in that. There's some value in speaking wonderful promises of God saying, you know, for instance, when he says, My Father... And he's telling his testimony with the God who shepherded me. Those are reminders of, of faith. That encourages the gener younger generation. Walk with God. Pursue God. Live, live a life to glorify God. Turn to God. Trust God. Watch Him do His work in your life. It's a very powerful thing. And I might even encourage you to sit down and think, what would you say if this was the last hour of your life, what would you say to your family? What would you say to your church family? How would you speak to them about God and His greatness and His mercy towards us? Genesis 49, as we move forward, Jacob is going to call together all of his sons. In verse 2 he says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. And then as he starts, he moves in in verse 3. One guy I listened to this week, he just spoke of this and he would say, after each one of these guys, and I don't know if I'll remember to do this, but he would say, are there any Rubens in here? And he was just moving through step by step through the names. But you'll notice here with Reuben, he's going to say, Reuben, you're my firstborn. He was his firstborn son. He goes on to say to him, he says, you are the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but you're unstable as water. He was, he was a man that, that defiled his father's couch. He went into his concubine. He went to try to take preeminence over his father's house. He was a, he was a rebellious man. And so he had this, this might and this power, but then he wasted it away. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. This is what he did. He defiled it. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. He did not have the character of the one who had the authority. He had the authority without the character. He went up to the, his father's bed again. And it, it, it's almost one guy said he didn't have the character of greatness, but he wanted the position of greatness. He didn't have the character of greatness, but he wanted that position. That's, a, that's, a, that's something I think it's important to see here. And, and he's going to, really later, we're going to see that Reuben's family is going to stay east of the promised land. And they'll be wiped away. 
I think it's just important to say that, man, character is important. And you see this in this story as we see it unfold in his life. And even as his tribe follows in that. You notice here in verses 5-7, through Simeon and Levi. Y'all remember, we studied about them. What did they do? Well, their sister was, uh, went, was horrifically mistreated by some men. Or a man. They go into the town and, they say, and, and those men say, hey, now this guy wants to marry your sister. They say, that's fine, but you have to be circumcised. And so they go in with their circumcision knife and show them how to be circumcised. And all the men are just wailing as a result of that. Three days later, they walk in with those same swords and they kill every one of them. They rage. They're angry. They're bitter. They, just, they hold resentment deeply. They, they, they want to feel that, that, that they want to get like their anger. They want to hold on to it so that they can destroy. Their anger grew up inside of them like Cain's until they had murderous intent. They want to destroy anyone who gets in, in the way of them. And they wanted to, to do this. And, and they did it in a very horrific way. He says to them, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You, you ever met someone really angry? Really angry? They just carry bitterness and resentment inside of them and it comes out in so such destructive ways. Simeon and Levi are, are, are the pattern. Their pattern is something you do not want to follow. I mean, I, I think the Scripture clearly reveals that. We say it over and over and over. But are you like them? Inside of you, is that growing like a cancer? You know, it's interesting, later we're going to see about them, and we, we don't have time to go into all the details of that, but Simeon is going to get his place among the people of God in the land. He's going to get this spot, but he's going to kind of be, it's going to be in Judah's area also. He's going to kind of be, kind of be taken away and forgotten. Levi is this one who is going to, this is what's going to happen to him. We think he's going to be scattered, and he will. But what's going to happen is, remember when the children are going to, of Israel are going to go out and, 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 and they're going to come out of Egypt and they're going to uh, go to a place and then Moses is going to go up on the mount and he's going to get the Ten Commandments and he's going to come back down and they are, they're going to be like worshiping a golden calf. And in that moment, all this takes place and, and Moses ends up calling together anybody who would stand beside the Lord and His ways and reject this this horrible idolatry, and the sons of Levi come together and they stand on the side of the Lord and the Lord says they are going to be the special tribe that's going to minister to the people of God. They're going to be scattered throughout the children of Israel and God is going to use them. He redeems that. Even though they're going to be scattered, it's going to be in a way to bring salvation and and speaking truth about the Gospel to them. It's a very powerful picture of how their tribe was redeemed to be used for a greater purpose in spite of their sin. Judah, as you kind of see this one unfold, I think it's important. We'll just read this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah's a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the, 
in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. You know, when you think about Judah's life, we look at him and we say, man, we see sin in his life. Genesis 38, like one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. But you know what happens at the end of chapter 38? When he knows that he's sinned, he says, this woman is more righteous than I. And you see this kind of glimpse into repentance in his life? Later, he was the one that said, sell Joseph into slavery. Later, he said, put me into slavery so that Benjamin can go home. We see these kind of signs of repentance and leadership in his life. He's honest before God, and God is going to use this tribe in a very powerful way. You'll notice this in this verse. It says that, uh, that he's kind of like this, uh, ra- don't rouse the great lion. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. We'll speak of that later in Scripture. He is going to be the leader of the people of God. Later they will have a king. And it will, the king will come from the tribe of Judah. And the Scripture says in verse 10, what? The scepter will not depart from him. What is the scepter? It's the, it's, the, 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 it's the thing of authority. The scepter will not depart from him. Now, some people, some people would talk about how, this, how to understand this until Shiloh comes, until tribute, as it said there. Until, the way to kind of people translate Shiloh until to him who comes. Most people would say, that we understand this to be the, until the Christ comes to create this new kingdom. And it will be obedience of the peoples. Jew and Gentile will come under Him. I think it's just important to see that you know Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And really, even when He, remember when He came into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the foal of a donkey, you remember that? It's, It's one of those things, I think it's just important that we understand that, that this tribe and in this moment, God is saying, This is going to be the kingly tribe and this is the one in whom uh, the Christ will come and bring salvation. We see Zebulun and it says he he dwells at the shore of the sea. And and really when the the places are set up and they're moving into the land, he's going to be there. There's a certain element to where that is going to be a place where there will be a haven for ships. It's a place where a lot of money would come. There will be many merchants, a lot of things. But there will be close to where it says Sidon. They'll be close there to something that was a very worldly place. So there's like wealth and prosperity and and probably a very popular city for all the people to come. But at the same time, there's a worldliness about it. And again, we could ask the question, what about you? There's an element where I think each one of these, you say, am I walking in this way? Have I been blessed with much, but I have this kind of very close to the world? Is there an easy way to fall into that? But you could just keep thinking through this as we move forward. Issachar is a strong donkey. That sounds kind of weird. Would you like to be called a strong donkey? You might be like, no, that's kind of weird. I mean, I don't really want to be. But that, that was something, sometimes people were identified with having a donkey. It's like having a really nice truck. Look at my great donkey out there. Did you see my new donkey? You know, I mean, it's kind of that deal. Like, I have a stronger donkey than you. I bet I can put ten bags on my donkey while you can only put five on yours. There's something about, but we would not think of it that way. We'd say, you're really weird if you were doing that. But people do that with their trucks. Let's go lock them up. Chain them up behind each other. See who can pull who, you know. So anyway, but it's it, in this deal we see this strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. I think 
another thing, you just kind of see this. He was the, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to the bear and became a servant at forced labor. It's kind of the idea that the strong donkey sits down among the sheep because he's kind of a lazy person. And he just drags around and does nothing, and ultimately he's going to be taken over because he's not industrious, he's not working, he's not serious. He's a slothful, lazy person physically. And you could say, you meet people like that spiritually. They're lazy. They're lazy in the, in whole, from a holistic kind of picture of life. They're lazy physically, they're lazy spiritually, and they will be destroyed as a result of that. He's laying down and not motivated and not driven, and he, becomes, he comes into forced labor. In verses 16 through 18, we see Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper at the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. I wait for the salva- your salvation, O Lord. There's an element here, I think, that it's, it's not really, he's kind of, a serpent is, has to be secretive. He's not necessarily great. He doesn't have this great army. We kind of see this in the life of Samson, who was of the tribe of Dan. Samson was one who, and somebody talked about this, uh, you know, he killed a thousand men. He picked a, a, up a, a, the jawbone of a donkey and killed a thousand men. No army, no power, but it was like this secret force within him when the Spirit of God would come upon him. He was small in one sense. It wasn't like this great army coming, but very powerful. And we see kind of that story unfold through, throughout the history of these people. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid, uh, shall raid at their heels. There's one kind of an interesting thing here that, that's, that these raiders are going to come. Gad and them are going to sit outside again, away from the promised land, and ultimately there will be trouble as a result of that. To stand out away from the promised land is kind of to be away from the presence of God. There's an element where he's like right on the line. He's right on the line of kind of being out in the, the, this, the scary world, and then at the same time, he's right on the edge of being among the people of God. And one again, one author said, you know people like that. They spend their life in that way. They, they, they kind of have, um, they, they enjoy this world, and then they, they want to be among the people of God, and they're kind of twisted. Again, I, you may not like to look at it that way, but I think it's kind of helpful to see this. Now, the Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. He was in the upper left-hand corner. He was very wealthy. You think about cities. There's regions in cities. You might say in Texarkana, there's spots where there's a lot of wealthy people. This 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 tribe would be extremely wealthy. One, again, I just I read a bunch on it this week, but you know there was a lady in the New Testament from this tribe. It was uh, this lady's name was Anna, and she's in the Gospel of Luke. And you know what? She's the one. What what one author said about. Asher was they they wanted all their daughters to marry kings but but Anna was looking for a king she was cooking for the king to come and she would go to the temple every day and worship and when Jesus came she says this is the one she saw him as the great king you keep moving here Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns some people interpret that beautiful words Naphtali that would be kind of a country people like Arkansas people you know what I'm saying no, I shouldn't say that. You, some of y'all are from Arkansas, aren't you? Look at Holmes over there. You're mad. Bobby's going to be fighting me. I, listen, as a country folks, you know, you kind of stay away from those cats. But ultimately, no, I'm just kidding. But but they're, they're, 
this, this thing of bringing good words, some people say if that's the way you interpret that, you understand later Jesus is going to be in Nazareth in that area, the Galilean area where he would be, where he would grow up. He's going to grow up and he's going to start speaking to all the rednecks. They're going to think he is one. And they look at him and think, what's going on? But when he speaks, he speaks with such power and authority and he comes and he seeks and comes to seek and save the lost. The very powerful thing, his words brought power in that time. And we see him again growing up in this place. You can move forward to Joseph in verses 22 through 26. Joseph, we know of him that he was broken greatly, but used greatly by God. And God, as you see, Joseph, I mean, Jacob's going to speak over him great things. He's going to say, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by spring. Just like a, the heavy branch of a, the, the major kind of branch coming up or trunk of a tree, you might say. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be the, on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who, is set, who, who was set apart from his brothers. We see this great blessing in his life. We see his power. The mighty hand of Jacob is with him. His power, he, the shepherd. We see the aspect of God shepherding him. His faithfulness towards him. The stone is, is always throughout Scripture. This steadfastness, this rock. God is called the stone. We see that throughout. This is the first time in Scripture this is played out before us, there's many people that are tied to the, his tribes, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, and, and one is Joshua who comes forth and leads the people and is em, empowered by God to go into the promised land. A lot of different blessings that come to these people. It's a very powerful thing. The last son that's mentioned is Benjamin. And it says he's a, a, a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spool. He kills enough. It's kind of the idea of he kills enough for everyone they turned out to be some of the greatest warriors. If you read uh, Judges, you'll see Ehud, the man who had a withered hand. His right hand was withered. He went in with a, a knife and he stabbed the judge. And he, I mean, I mean, stabbed this king and killed him. It's kind of they were known for their mighty power, their their ability to fight, and their ability to be at war. So anyway, just kind of some of the background of them. Just want to lay that out for you to think about. But there is something, uh, some prophetic kind of element where it's saying this is what it's going to be like in the future, but it's kind of tied to the past. And there's a lot of things I think that are very important there. In verses 28 through 33, he's going to conclude with them, and he's going to speak. Uh, he's going to pass away, and he's going to have spoken to all of his sons before he does. In this deathbed scene, we see a couple of things just to kind of lay out for you. In his death, we see he died in God's time. It was God's this moment. God said, this is the time for him. God is sovereign over our death. He's accomplished his work for him. And he's, he's brought this about. The day of our deaths are ordained by God. And so after he speaks over his, his family, then he passes on to be with the Lord. 
He also, it's this an idea where he says, I'll be gathered to my people. It's a homecoming. You know, sometimes I think about this, and I, I, this one guy mentioned that, you know, if he could, like when he was doing a funeral, and, and you think of people saying, man, I wish I could just get my, my, this person in my family back. wish I could just get them back. But the reality is, if you die in the Lord, meaning if you have trusted in Christ, your family shouldn't want you back. They would be dragging you out of the presence of God. This, this, this uh, pastor said, if somebody came up with some kind of dust and he said, I can sprinkle this on and raise your family member back up, he said, I would say never. He would fight those people away. He didn't want to pull them away from the great joy of being with God. We should, not, we should really long for the day that we are able to be with the Lord. To not do so, to not do so, is to, to discount the greatness of what God says to us Paul said this light momentary affliction has nothing to compare to the glory that's to be revealed. We should die well, welcoming the day when we will be gathered with the people of God. It's a great blessing to know that that's going to take place. He also is going to be buried in the place of promise. He's dying in faith, believing that God is going to do what He said He was going to do. Believing that God was going to bring His people together. That God was going to bring a Savior. That God was going to rescue the peoples. And He is going to die in faith saying, bury me here. Bury me among the people of God. I am dying in faith. Trusting what He says He's going to do. As we conclude today, I I think the point of these passages is to ask maybe a couple of questions for us. One is just to see the people of promise and what God's going to do. But also just say, if you're, are you living a life? Are you living a life that would be, if someone was to speak over your life what it was about, would it bring honor to God? As the Scripture over and over says, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. Are you, are you striving by the power of God to live a life of faithfulness? To live a life of, of complete and absolute abandon to yourself and say, I want to live for God. You want to serve Him with everything that you are. I think that's so important to to see that and to understand that. Now, you might say, well, Jared, in the past I've walked this way, but now I want to walk that way. And I would say, do that. Understand that, that, that you want to live your life now. You want to live as if you are moving towards heaven. You want to embrace that and live for those things. And, and the blessing that God could, or that someone could speak over you would be saying, this person turned away at this moment, and from that point on, they lived and served God. Another thing I think is just important, just to remember, we see this in the life of Joseph as his father blesses him. He is the one that you know, is presented often, so often, as the one who, who, in so many ways, his life reflects and points us to Christ. But you know, when God says of him, this is my beloved son, when he speaks over Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When he does that, we understand that those of us here who are in Jesus Christ, the scripture says we're adopted in his family, we are brothers with Jesus, but we have all the the rights and privileges of being one of his sons, that God would speak over us that you are my beloved son. In a very powerful way, we are united to Jesus. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours in Christ. What Jesus accomplished on this life, they are placed on us as if we did that. 
We get to experience that great blessing of saying what God spoke over His Son because we are united to Him by faith. He's speaking over us. We are forgiven of our sins. We're giving right standing with God. We're empowered by His Spirit to live for Him. There's so many benefits to being a child of God and to know that we are blessed by Him through His Son with every spiritual blessing is astonishing. But let me ask you this, as in light of that, do you want to walk in a manner worthy? Do you want to live a life of fruitfulness and faithfulness? Don't you want to spend the rest of your day saying, Lord, let me live for You. Let me bring glory and honor to You. You may say, I haven't ever done that. And I've never experienced what Jacob spoke of when he said, the Lord had been my shepherd all my days. The One who redeemed my life. The One who saved me. Maybe you're there. Now we call upon you today. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in here in a moment to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. To see our only hope to be blessed in the future and now to be in a state of blessing is through the One who died for us and gave His life and lived the life that we could never live. So if you would just bow with me and we'll close today. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have given us just a glimpse into this family. We're able to see just for a few minutes just the powerful picture of a blessing for them that was tied somewhat to their future but also with their past. Lord, we are reminded today that although we may have a very rough past that You have given to us in Your Son, a new identity, a new standing, the promise of forgiveness and blessing eternally. That we receive by faith all the blessings that have come to Your Son, the One whom You said, this is My beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. But I just ask that as we go forward, that we would be reminded of that. We would rejoice in that. And that we would live a life that would be evidence of that transformation. In Christ's name, amen.